Hello, and welcome to another episode of Things I Read for My Girlfriend to Fall Asleep, a podcast-type thing where I read relatively boring articles to help my girlfriend into dreamland wherever she may be. If you're not my girlfriend and are listening to this, thank you for joining us, and I hope this can be of some use to you as well. Tonight's article is another from the Parish Review, titled Leather for Libraries. This is a chapter from a book titled History of Sumac Tanning in England, Degradation of the Manufacture of Leather, and History of the Reform Movement, a 1905 book by E. Wyndham Hume. The section of the leather trade to which this handbook relates is that concerned in the manufacture of light leathers tanned with a pale tannage preparatory to being dyed. Bark and most other vegetable tanning substances leave a color on the skin which cannot be removed without detriment to the durability of the leather. The retention of the color, however, detracts from the purity of the final color imparted by the dye. The reputation in the past of sumac-tanned Spanish leather was founded upon this peculiar property of sumac of leaving the skin white, and on this point the wisdom of the ancients has been justified by the results of an exhaustive series of experiments conducted by the Society of Arts Committee, which have given to Sumac the first place in the list of tannages for light leathers. The date of the introduction of Sumac tanning into England may, with some show of probability, be assigned to the year 1565, when a seven years monopoly patent was granted to two strangers, Roger Huxtonbury and Bartholomew Verberick, for the manufacture of Spanish or beyond sea leather, on the condition that the patentees should employ one native apprentice for every foreigner in their service. This stipulation indicates that the industry was a new one. Following the custom of the times, the supervision of the industry was entrusted to the wardens of the Company of Leather Sellers in London. Additional evidence of the use of sumac at this period is afforded by another patent to a Spanish Jew, Rodrigo Lopez, one of Elizabeth's physicians. By way of settling her doctor's bills, the queen granted to Lopez, in 1584, an exclusive license to import sumac and aniseed for ten years. Besides attending the queen in his professional capacity, Lopez was called upon to act as interpreter to the Portuguese pretender Don Antonio on his visit to this island. As the result of some misunderstanding with Antonio, Lopez was induced to join a conspiracy nominally aimed against the life of Antonio, but actually directed against the queen, and in 1594, Lopez expiated his crimes at Tyburn. Those who are curious in such matters will be interested to trace in The Merchant of Venice the reappearance of our Sumac merchant as Shylock, while the name of Antonio is boldly retained by Shakespeare for his hero. After the arrest of Lopez, his grant was continued to R. Alexander and R. Ampesson. In the Charter of the Leather Sellers Company, dated 1604, Spanish leather and other leathers dressed or wrought in sumac or bark are mentioned. In 1660, the duty granted upon import sumac was fixed at 13 cents per 
I'm not sure what these units are, for something of 112 pounds, and on dried myrobalans at three somethings per pound, thus disproving the statement of Professor Thorold Rogers in his History of Prices that oak bark was the only tanning material used in England at this period. The earliest description known to the writer of the process of sumaking by sewing up the skins into bottles and allowing the fluid extract to penetrate the fiber by its pressure is to be found in 1754 in the Dictionary of Arts and Science, Volume 3, Article Morocco. The first step in the degradation of the manufacture of light leathers, though it at first affected the heavy leathers only, was the introduction of the use of sulfuric acid in 1768 by Dr. McBride of Dublin. By substituting a vitriolic liquor for the vegetable acids obtained in fermenting bran, rye, or other cereals, Dr. McBride claimed three advantages. Firstly, absolute control over the degree of acidity of the liquor, whereas organic souring was troubling and uncertain. Secondly, that the skins were plumped better by the acid, and that the danger of injury to the skins by bacterial action was avoided. And thirdly, that the process of tanning was materially shortened. At all events, the doctor succeeded in convincing first the Dublin tanners, and shortly thereafter, their Bermondsey rivals, of the superiority of his methods, which, as already stated, were intended for heavy leathers only. Having once established its footing in the tan yard, the use of sulfuric acid was soon further extended. With the introduction of aniline dye stuffs about 1870, sulfuric acid came into universal use as a means of clearing the skin before entering the dye bath. The effect of the introduction of the coal tar colors was to revolutionize the dyeing of leather. Under the old regime of the vegetable dye stuffs, the few standard shades of red, blue, olive, yellow, and black were obtained on Morocco's more dented with alum, while bark-tanned calf and sheep skins were, as a rule, left in their natural browns and ornamented by sprinkling or marbling. The wide range of colors offered by the new dye stuffs fascinated the public, which accepted the new leathers without question as to their durability. Librarians began to insist upon accuracy and uniformity of shade regardless of the methods by which these results were obtained. Yet, apart from the question of durability, it is clear that the brilliancy of color has been purchased at too high a price. Under the old system of dyeing, a thin superficial layer of color was laid over the natural white of the skin, thereby obtaining a variety and depth of color which is in striking contrast to the dead uniformity of the colors of modern acid-bitten leathers. Hence, the reform of the manufacture of the light leathers is supported by aesthetic as well as by practical considerations. Passing from the domain of chemistry to that of mechanics, the Committee of the Society of Arts has emphasized the need of a return to sounder and less ruinous methods of dealing with leather, but their recommendations are so clearly set out in their report that it is proposed here to touch upon one point only, that is, the artificial graining of leather. The committee remark that whereas many examples of sound sheepskin dating from the 15th century to the early part of the 19th century had been brought to their notice since about 1860 sheepskin as sheepskin is hardly to be found. Now the decoration of leather by the impression of patterns by mechanical pressure had long been known, 
the lozenge pattern of early Russian leather having been affected in the 18th century by means of engraved steel cylinders. But in 1851, it occurred to an ingenious mechanic that, by means of the electroplate process, an exact reproduction of the grain of the higher-priced skins might be communicated to sheepskin or other inferior leather, whereby the selling value of the latter would be considerably enhanced. From this date, therefore, sheepskin disappears from view only to reappear as imitation morocco, pigskin, or other higher-priced leather. So perfectly does the counterfeit skin imitate the original on the bound volume that the two can only be distinguished with certainty by microscopic examination. Librarians, therefore, must bear in mind that a familiarity with the natural characteristics of the ordinary binding leathers is no safe guide to the character of the leather of a binding. The utmost that can be said is that the leather is either genuine or else a remarkably good counterfeit, a conclusion which, it is hardly necessary to say, is not one of great value in practice. As might have been supposed, the rapid decay of leather bindings in the 19th century, resulting from a combination of the above malpractices with the attendant evils of heavy outlay upon rebinding, cropped margins, and ill-matched sets upon the shelves, from time to time attracted the attention of book lovers and book binders. But their efforts to determine the causes of the deterioration and to find a remedy have until recently met with very little success. In 1842, the subject was investigated by Professors Faraday, Brand, and others on behalf of the Athenaeum Club. This committee is largely responsible for the sulfur and gas theory, a theory which was never wholly true, even at a period when the percentage of sulfur in coal gas was much higher than at present, and which has now ceased to have any practical bearing upon the matter. It should be noted that in 1851, Crace Calvert, the well-known Manchester chemist, came to a different conclusion. After pointing out that decay in leather was observable in libraries, such as the Chetham Library, in which gas had never been used, he stated that the presence of sulfuric acid in leather bindings was attributable to one or more of three causes. A, to the pollution of the atmosphere by consumption of coal in the Manchester factories. B, to the action of gas fumes in unventilated rooms, or c, to the use of sulfuric acid by the tanners. And he further expressed his opinion that the seed of the disease would be found in irregularities in the process of tanning. In other words, that the disease was aggravated rather than originated by these first two causes. Calvert's views, however, met with very little support. In 1877, at the Conference of Librarians in London, a proposal was made that a committee of librarians and chemists should deal with the matter, but no effect was given to the proposal. Ten years later, a series of experiments on the action of gas fumes and heat was undertaken on behalf of the Birmingham Library by Mr. C.T. Woodward. Strips of leather exposed for 1,000 hours to the action of gas fumes at temperatures of 130 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit showed a mean absorption of sulfuric acid of 1.78% accompanied by a marked reduction in their stretching capacity and breaking strain. The experiments on the action of heat alone were regarded as inconclusive. Mr. Woodward suggested that the Library Association should undertake the testing of leathers, and that librarians should thereafter employ only leather of a given standard, but once more, nothing was done. In the meantime, the reputation of leather as a binding material continued to dwindle. One leather after another was tried, found wanting and excluded from library practice, while various leather substitutes, buckram, 
art linen, and imitation leathers gradually took its place. It is due to the efforts of Dr. Parker and Professor Proctor between 1898 and 1900 that the real facts of the case have been brought to light. In the latter years, an agitation in favor of standard leather was set on foot by Lord Cobham, Mr. Cockrell, Mr. Davenport, and others, which resulted in the appointment by the Society of Arts of a Committee on Leathers for Bookbinding, the cost of which was met by a grant from the Leather Sellers Company. Upon the publication of the first report of the above committee in 1901, the subject was taken up by the Council of the Library Association, and after several papers had been read at the monthly meetings in London and elsewhere, a committee was appointed to ascertain how far members of the association were prepared to accept a common standard for binding leathers. For this purpose, in March 1904, close upon 1,000 circulars were addressed to the libraries of the United Kingdom asking for a statement of their views upon the following proposals, amongst others. A. That the council should appoint an official analyst. B. That they should publish a handbook giving to the members of the association such information as would enable them to secure sound leather at a reasonable price. The circular meeting, with favorable reception, the council invited Dr. Parker to draw up a scale of fees for the analysis of leathers, and the scale having been duly approved, Dr. Parker was at once appointed analyst to the association. Since the appointment of the committee, abundant evidence has been forthcoming that at last the reform of light leathers for bookbinding and upholstery is now in sight. The efforts of the committee have been warmly seconded by the press. In the recently concluded government binding contracts, a clause has been inserted enabling any department to obtain standard leather and rendering the contractor liable to heavy penalties for infringement of the conditions of this clause. Yet, the price paid for bindings in this leather is only fractionally increased. From the outset, the committee have been assured of the support of the leading firms of leather manufacturers who have recognized that, if leather is to regain the ground which has been lost, it must be by the adoption of a common standard of manufacture and by the introduction of honest trade descriptions in the retail trade. Hence, where the provenance of the leather is declared and the method of its manufacture supported by a written guarantee from the leather manufacturer, the need for periodical analysis of samples is less urgent. But where the bookbinder is unwilling or unable to state the provenance of his leathers, recourse to chemical analysis is the only safeguard. The librarian on his side will materially assist the binder by limiting his demand to leathers of a few standard shades and by abstaining from insisting upon accurate matching to pattern. If the piecing, paneling, and lettering of cereals is kept uniform, a want of uniformity in the shade of leather is not of much practical moment. In the meantime, the librarian should keep a vigilant watch for the following symptoms of deterioration. General shabbiness and tenderness of leather, especially at parts where the leather is strained over the cords on the back or edges of the boards, probable cause is sulfuric acid. Also, look for red rot in Morocco. On friction, the leather turns to a red powder. Probable cause, a Persian or East Indian half-bred sheepskin has been supplied in place of goat. Additionally, withering of pigskin accompanied by discoloration. Probable cause, over pulling down of the skin in the puring process. If the pigskin has been dyed in a bright shade, 
acid also is present. Lastly, deterioration and discoloring of smooth and light colored calf skins, especially law calf. Probable cause, use of oxalic acid by the bookbinder to remove grease marks and etc.